Hi, my name is Aisha Small. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth in Education podcast, where I interview interesting guests to explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK. This podcast is brought to you by the Youth Think and Action Tank, LKM Co. Hello, I'm Dr Sam Bars. Welcome to this edition of the Youth in Education podcast. In this episode, I talk to our Head of Research, Ellie Mulcahy, about three pieces of research that have grabbed her attention recently. We talk about the benefits of studying, working or volunteering abroad, and why some groups of students are far less likely to take up these opportunities. Then we discuss different ways of teaching maths. Is there a space for free play? Finally, we talk about ZARPIs. No, we haven't lost our minds. It's a fascinating study about girls' engagement with science and how that can be affected by the language we use. Thanks for listening. LKM co-believes society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at lkmco.org. Can we listen to it now? Hello Ellie, how are you doing? I'm doing good, how are you? Very good indeed, thank you. This is not your first ever podcast, but it has been quite a substantial amount of time, hasn't it? Since yeah, the last I think time. it's my first research roundup, and I also did maybe the second podcast. Um, yeah, you were one so of the trailblazers. I was, I was. Yeah, you know, I was out there in, in front. So. But you flew too high. You <laughs> yeah, and then just came crashing down, <laughs> never to be seen again. Well, I'm still here. Um, but yeah, it just seemed like a long time ago. Yeah, well, it's good to have you back. Um, Given that it's been quite a while, as we were just discussing, I'm going to hit you with the, uh, the podcast icebreaker question, which is on phases of education. Yeah. So before we dig into the three bits of research that you've picked for us to discuss, uh, tell me about your rank ordering of the phases of education that you've been through. Again, as I always explain to everyone that I hit with this question, uh, not about how you did or how useful you found them, but just in terms of joy, which ones you enjoyed the most? Because you've asked in terms of joy, I'm afraid, as I warned you, I'm going to give maybe a slightly negative answer. Oh, okay. Um, because when I listened to Abby's podcast, then I thought, oh, what would my answer to that question be? And because um, alongside Loic, I'm the only person in the team without a postgraduate qualification, <laughs> then I had a smaller set to choose from. Um, and basically, I couldn't think of one. There's nothing to be insecure about but, that. But... <laughs> head of research underqualified um but i think i might have to go with like play group or something because i wasn't a big fan of school um i got bullied in almost every phase of education but i'm okay about it now okay um and i found uni a struggle as well because i did a course which when i look back on was really interesting but at the time i had barely any contact hours so i was just quite bored because at that time i was not very good at directing my own time which i am now um so yeah Sorry to give such a negative answer, and I'll laugh about it. I always give it negative answers, but I think I'd struggle. Playgroup, it was a good time. Yeah. We used to ice digestive biscuits. It's a fond memory. Oh, that's that's one of the best. Yeah, <laughs> I think I used to ice rich teas. But oh, okay. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, that might be a sudden thing. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Maybe it's a, a regional, yeah, regional difference. No, that, was, that was a very candid answer, yeah. uh, which we all which we all appreciate. And I I think your higher education point is one of the many, many good reasons for lifelong learning, is yeah. it not? You know, yeah. I think a lot of us who've done degrees, gone to done something higher education, have a bit of a feeling that we probably would get something different out of it if we were just a little bit older yeah, and we'd definitely. had the chance. So that's I think, you know, if I if I were to do something now I'd enjoy it much more. 
have a much more handle on the kind of things that I'm interested in and sort of doing that like more independent study but ultimately like, when you go to university you are quite young mm. um, and it's you know I wasn't very good at it at that time and it can be a bit a bit odd when you're just sort of like thrown in with four contact hours a week yeah. and not much else whereas mm. I think postgraduate study would be different so mm. we'll see maybe yeah. one day I think it's something we both find when we do field work with young people in schools, talking about higher education is just that, that disconnect as well. Or you can, you can almost sense the lack of preparation that there might be with some of those young people for what, you know, yeah. what it's going to be like and, the, and how, what a stark contrast it can be from school and college. So. Yeah, I think quite often they don't necessarily have a super good appreciation of the fact that it is so different. Mm. Um, they think, the, you know, you can anchor things to what you know, what's familiar... Um, so it is tempting to do that, but I don't find it similar at all. Mm. Okay. On a higher education theme, let's press That's on to the off. first of our three pieces. This first one is on participation in UK outward student mobility. It's a piece from Universities UK. Can you give us an overview of the broad gist of this piece of research? Yeah, so basically it's looking into um, students that take up opportunities to work, study or volunteer abroad. Um, which I was interested in because I've done quite a bit of stuff in terms of widening access and entry to um, higher education. So it's really nice to be thinking a little bit more about you know, what actually happens when students get there, regardless of what background they're from, and sort of people making the most out of um, their time in higher education. Um, and the general gist of the paper is that it's highly beneficial if students get the chance to be mobile. They, sort of, they talk about it in terms of mobile students and non-mobile students. Um, and have an opportunity to do something abroad during their studies. Um, but it's not something that is evenly spread in terms of opportunity in different groups of students. Um, and as with a lot of things when we're looking at um, higher education, students from disadvantaged backgrounds, um, students from black and minority ethnic backgrounds are less likely to um, take up these opportunities and therefore less likely to get the benefits from them. Mm. And the benefits seem to be quite broad-ranging, so there's you know, the, the degree you end up earning at the end of higher education, um, but also proportions who are in employment afterwards, and the proportion who are actually in like, graduate-level work as opposed to kind of yeah. any, any kind of work. So yeah. it seems Which is a really important one, because quite often when we look at things like widening access, like students going to university then one of the big barriers if they're talking about things like they've got peers or they know of people or they feel like it could be them that they'll do go to university they'll get a degree but they won't end up in a graduate level job okay they'll end up in the same job they would have been in anyway and if they kind of got that feeling about things then it can be a really big barrier to entry anyway mm. so the fact that being mobile is something that can really increase the likelihood that you get a job that is not the job you would have got had you not gone into higher education then it's, you know, it's a really important sort of add-on of your higher education experience that can mm. help you have that benefit. Mm. Um, and then you know, it's, it's right through to earnings as well. You know, students that have been mobile earn 5% more on average. And one of my first reactions when I was reading about the findings of this piece of research is that it might just be that students who are mobile, who take up these opportunities for kind of work or study abroad during the course of their degree, are a pretty self-selecting bunch who are probably more advantaged in the first place. But there is if you kind of control for, um, for advantage, so to speak. So they actually find that um, among disadvantaged students and among the other underrepresented groups in these with these opportunities, it actually has even more of a beneficial impact. Um, oh, okay. So say that, you know, um, students who 
are from black and minority ethnic backgrounds who go in smaller numbers, um, go abroad for study and work, in smaller numbers than their white counterparts, um, they will get a bigger earnings premium off the back of, um, of those opportunities. Mm. Um, and the, essentially those outcomes are more pronounced. I think in terms of when you said, you know, there may be a self-selecting, perhaps go-getters, and advantage. I think you can see that it's not a question of the advantage that a student already has because students from disadvantaged backgrounds will really benefit from these opportunities as well. Mm. But there might be something in that sort of like go-getting, self-selecting attitude of if you're the kind of person that puts themselves forward for one of these opportunities, then you're also the kind of person that might end up doing very well in other outcomes. Mm. Um, and I don't think that um, certainly the paper that we're talking about doesn't directly address that. Um, but I think you could easily acknowledge it and say yes, but also it's hard to argue with the logic that going abroad, having a new experience, perhaps even learning a new language if you're you know, abroad for quite a long time, or having employment experience will benefit you regardless of whether you're the kind of person that, that might have been a bit more of a go-getter or might more have um, pushed yourself in terms of the grades you get or, or the job you get afterwards. Mm. I think you can, you can argue quite easily that it's will be beneficial to everybody who kind of wants to take it up if they're given that opportunity. Mm. Okay, so am I right in thinking there might be some characteristics uh, that correlate with, or that for which studying abroad is a kind of a proxy, mm. like particular kind of attitudes to kind of, or being resilient to change or quite enjoying uh, new challenges or extending your horizons. Yeah. Um, there might be a bit of that in the mix and that yeah. people who take up these opportunities maybe have some of those attitudes or... Um, ways of being which stand you in quite good stead, for instance, in the in the labour market. Yeah, okay. I think yeah, I think there's definitely a possibility. Um, you know, there's a to a certain extent more research is needed to look at exactly mm. how um, those sort of you know different um, levers work in terms of the change that's seen afterwards. Um, but I still don't think in terms, it, I just still don't think it can be discounted and be like, oh, well, they would have been fine anyway. Because I think the key point that then comes out of the study is that those opportunities clearly are not accessed equally. Mm. Um, so if it's something that's coming from people pushing themselves and having those attributes, then we need to make sure that people that might struggle a little bit more to push themselves and do those things, have access to the mm. opportunities, or even just that it's equal across things like advantage, disadvantage, or ethnicity. Mm. Or you know the other groups I haven't mentioned that I definitely should because they're the key Another two key groups who are underrepresented are disabled students and care leavers who mm. are underrepresented in universities um, and higher education in general, mm. but um, in quite a pronounced way in terms of these opportunities. Yeah. yeah. So some of these groups are underrepresented in higher education in the first place, but it seems yeah. they're also then uh, yeah. un underrepresented when it comes to some of the kind of uh, extension opportunities or however you want to characterise them that you can experience when you're there. And what kind of barriers do young people report what kind of barriers do students report to taking up these kind of opportunities? Do they touch on that in a report? Um, so they do. They look at um, the extent to which, they compare the extent to which students that did go abroad and students that didn't um, cite potential barriers and talk about potential barriers. And they mm. talk about things um, like being abroad, um, being away from a partner um, and fear of isolation, sort of not feeling comfortable, lack of knowledge, lack of language experience and sort of worries that anybody might have. Um, and then they talk about um, the one that, that might seem obvious, which is in terms of financial aspects um, 
and concerns about whether or not you could fund it. Mm. Um, I don't have a particularly in-depth knowledge of how these things are funded, but I suppose you'd see quite easily, even if it's a funded opportunity, if you, for instance, work alongside your studies mm. um, and you, you need that money to fund you know, your life here, um, then dropping that for even quite a short time could be problematic. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think there are aspects of life at university that um, poorer students have to maintain, which may be less compatible with these kind of opportunities than, than other things. Mm. Okay, cool. Let's move on to the second piece. And this is about how children best learn maths. Um, yes. And maths is one of those interesting ones because it's, I feel like of all the, of all the subjects at school that parents have to help their their kids with it there's something about maths isn't there that really gets people either you're kind of okay with maths or you're absolutely terrified of it and uh, it's it's kind of a perennial question you know yeah there's a lot of low confidence in maths okay um, knocking around can't remember the exact percentages i've looked at it once Mm. but essentially the proportion of people that you know will agree with things like the fact that they i i am scared of maths doing maths really worries me, that kind of thing is huge. Mm. People find it quite difficult, but then, you know, people think they're out of it, they're out of school, they're kind of done, come mm. to have their own children, mm. it's back on the agenda. And also, I suppose more relevant to this piece of research, when I think back to how I was taught stuff at school, mm. I find maths the hardest to, to remember how, how I was taught. Uh, and this paper kind of gets at that, that's why I really, one of the reasons I really enjoyed it. So what are they, what are they looking at here? And what did you find interesting about it? So um, I found it particularly interesting because it's kind of got an early years focus um, and they're comparing direct instruction, um, which is pretty much as it sounds, but sort of like very adult led, structured um, approach to to teaching math sort of adult to child, Um, comparing that to guided play, either adult initiated or child initiated, which is essentially for those who don't have sort of like good early years um, understanding would be where you're engaged in some sort of game rather than something that feels more teachery. Um, and then that game could either have been initiated by the child and as a practitioner you'll kind of get in on that game perhaps trying to guide it towards certain outcomes that you have in mind for that child. You know, they might be playing in a garage with the cars and, you know, you might join in that game but then start to get them to do things like sort of like counting cars, just for a really simple example. Mm. Um, so that's kind of child-initiated, but then the adult has an impact. Or you can have adult-initiated play where an adult sets up something more of a game. Um, and they compare, so they're comparing that direct instruction, two types of guided play, to free play. And free play is essentially without too much of the adult intervention. The adult mm. might be there, they can, you can facilitate free play without making it into guided play, but essentially it, the children are playing freely, hence free play. So both in relation to this typology of... I guess it's kind of like a, a sliding scale or more accurately a typology of different approaches to interacting with young people in terms of how directed you are. I find it really interesting because it's, as a parent of a, a young kid, I find like free players is almost this kind of enigmatic thing. It's like it's actually impossible to, yeah. the, the nearest you get is when you go to a soft play and I kind of release them and they just run <laughs> off and go do their own thing. But yeah. sadly that happens quite seldom. Um, normally you can't, you have to get things going or you have yeah. to step in occasionally. So uh, this isn't necessarily the focus of this paper, but I just want to pick up on it briefly. Mm-hmm. There is, is there a clear distinction between free play and, and guided play. I mean, you just, you've already said that free play doesn't mean complete, like a complete lack of involvement from an adult. Yeah. But how far can you go while it's still free play? Um, so I would say that if you, it's it's something that people are you know strict on in, in different ways. My understanding okay. of it would be that 
Free play would be, a, first of all, a child has to initiate it, but that goes for child-initiated guided play as well. So mm. you might set something up, and when you say, you know, you've got to kind of get it going, if you have a group of children, like, you know, if you had Ida and her friends around and you let them out into the garden, they would play without you having set something up. So yeah. you'd be fully on child-initiated then. But if you had set up a game and they go to it, you didn't tell them to go to it, but they go to it and they're playing with it, you can still count that as free play. So if I kind of left the lawnmower out for them to play with yeah. or something, that yeah. would be... Yeah, but you don't have to, you know, if they want to decide to pretend that lawnmower is a castle rather than use it as a lawnmower, <laughs> then, you know, they take it, you, you've not guided them no. in that sense. So okay. they're still fully, fully free. And I would say in terms of the level of adult interaction, you can interact with them but all your leads would be, have to be taken from them. So you can't start introducing counting out of the blue as an adult and into their game of whatever they might be doing mm. and still call it free play. I think mm. you become a bit guided there in terms of you're introducing an agenda or an objective that you have in, as an adult which is not involved in their game. Mm. Whereas if you allow them to like fully you know, tell you what to do and you, you know, get on the lawnmower and pretend to be king of the castle and you're not counting, you're not doing anything they said you couldn't do, then you're, you're still in the sort of free play realm. Like adults can be involved in free play. Okay, and so thinking about a maths lesson, um, what does, firstly, what does, what might free play or a free play approach to teaching maths look like? And what does this report conclude in terms of which of these approaches is most effective at actually teaching maths? Yeah, so it's a really good question because most people, when you really understand what free play is, you're like, well, how could that be a maths lesson? Mm. I think almost even calling it a maths lesson has already negated the fact that it's free play. So okay. here we're talking about where children have their free play time and they may encounter maths in the world um, opportunities that mm. can allow them to, to learn. Um, so, you know, what, what it would look like, I think, in sort of real-world context is that you have your environment, especially as an LES practitioner, set up with opportunities for children to do things like encounter shapes, experiment with sort of measures and, you know, jugs in your water tray, whatever it might be, numbers everywhere, maths games that they might um, approach and engage with, although they'll always engage with it in a different way than you intended um, because they're children. Yeah. Um, you know, it would, in terms of how free play would look learning maths, you would hope that they were sort of experimenting, figuring things out, doing a bit of investigation and learning things. But to that end, um, what, the, what the study actually found is that the evidence for free play being an effective way of teaching maths and crucially sort of like really getting maths concepts across, new maths concepts, it's quite weak um, and there's, there's not much mm. evidence to support that children can learn maths concepts in that way. Whereas direct instruction done effectively is effective, especially for children that might struggle or be struggling with, um, with maths. Mm. Um, and they found that with guided play, done well, again, you can, you, know, you can teach maths quite effectively. But I think it doesn't mean that you throw free play out the window. Mm. It means sometimes you have to nudge children to opportunities, but you can understand why it doesn't work in isolation because you have to put a little bit of input in for them to be doing some of that exploring and investigating mm. around maths concepts. Um, and where this really led me to, because this is a study of four and five year olds, is more onto a much bigger question that we may not discuss here on, yes, you can still have free play and you might just not expect them to be learning maths at four and five. And the question is, do you want them to learn maths at four and five in the way that we're thinking about maths mm. at the moment, sort of maths concept? And our curriculum at the moment does. Some people would say that it shouldn't. Um, and so I don't think it's time to throw free play out the window. 
Mm. Maybe in terms of expecting them to, to learn things they previously did not know with no input, you're not going to have much success, but there's mm. definitely a place for it. And really briefly, is there a sense, a genuine question, not a leading question, <laughs> is there a sense in which free play, pretty much of any sort, um, just in the fact that it's, say, kids, a bit of role play that they find themselves doing is going to involve kind of patterns or repetition or some of these quite basic foundational concepts that feed into mm. our capability to do maths as humans. That's, that's actually really important. Like Some of that stuff that just happens in kids' play inherently involves maths in some sense. So by the time they get to school, even if they've just had a really rich diet of, of yeah. free play, they will have a handle on some actually quite important foundational things. Even like, for instance, uh, like a trial and error. There's a lot of trial and error in kids' yeah. solo play and group play. Um, and that's a really important skill in maths if you're trying to, if you're working with an equation or trying to find a universal formula for something, often trial and error, for instance. Mm. So, yeah, I think so. I think just, you know, in terms of, you know, think things like you said, that sort of trial and error is a good example. Also, just having experienced the world mm. so that you can tie some of your learning that might be more directed, more guided to, you know, experiences that you've had mm. um, as a child then it plays an important role because if you don't have that kind of experience that you might gain through free play, mm. then you're going to be limited in the extent to which you can you know, start to think about, I don't know, shapes that you see in your environment or you know, really what it means to use money. Mm. Um, and you know, there's also a lot in, really, for some of the concepts of maths that you want children to learn, the degree of concentration that they might need, the degree of, like the amount of engagement and like, ability to practice and stuff like that, mm. um, is quite high. And when they're playing and doing other things, you know they are developing those skills. And so it's really crucial that they, you know, in terms of their attention span, um, their their ability to try and fail and try again, are all skills that are crucial to maths. Mm. So while you might not think of it as like they're learning maths, you can't learn maths or indeed anything else in complete isolation from any other skills that you might need to develop. And that comes back really nicely to where we started on this, talking about take, you know, adults, but specifically maybe parents' confidence with maths. Maybe a lot of that is just due to the fact that when they were going through school, our education system was less, less good at teaching people that you know, getting stuff wrong is okay and that trial and error is often a valid approach. And I think maybe we're better at, better at that now, teaching kids that yeah. you know, exploring stuff, making mistakes, making errors, taking quite a while to get to a conclusion that feels good is kind of okay and that's actually a really useful yeah. skill. Maybe I mean, there's some of that yeah. in there. I, well, yeah, I, I think know. if I try to compare my foggy memories of school compared to you know, almost every school that I go into now as a mm. research and as a teacher, had, you know, there's definitely you see it in classrooms all the time, you know, like it's okay to fail as long as you try again, you know, mm. make mistakes will help us learn and more of that ethos through quite a lot of schools. Mm. So I think it's very possible. I think children today still experience a huge amount of maths anxiety okay. and anxiety around failure in general mm. because it comes from other places in society in terms of like, I still didn't, still, I mean, this is a much larger question than for our research chat now, but I still don't think we have a society which really tells people that it's okay to fail. Okay. And I think by the time you get to school, maybe a poster on the wall about failure or even your teacher's really good attitude and, mm. you know, the things that they're putting out there might not be enough to counteract all of those subliminal influences from society that tell you that you should be perfect. Mm. Uh, maybe okay. 
an existential question there. No, <laughs> no, that must, that's a, that's clearly a really important one that we should come back to at some point. Um, <laughs> the last study in our set of three yes. is so so recent off the press that it's probably still a bit warm. Yeah. Um, it's, it's barely a fortnight old. And it's about linguistic cues and the impact they can have on girls' engagement in science. I have to say this is probably my favourite of the three just because it yeah, was... Yeah, It had some of those results that just kind of jump off the page. Um, but rather than hear me ramble about it, can you summarise <laughs> it for us and tell us yes. uh, what, what drew you to it? I'll, I'll do my best. I might have to do a fairly long summary. Um, but I was drawn to this basically because I'm interested in sort of language and how um, I did a lot of this in my undergrad degree about how language influences the way that we think about things. I'm also interested in um, sort of girls' engagement, like gender um, differences in engagement, attainment, things like that. And mm. um, this one is about girls' engagement in science. So essentially, some researchers decided to look at whether or not the way that you talk about science can influence the way that girls and boys are, um, are able to engage in science. Um, and the reason they decided to do this study is that they already know that talking about groups of people or people with certain jobs um, or made up groups can quite quickly, children will, will form opinions about sort of what it means to be part of that group and what it means that the, the people in that group can do. Mm. Um, it's quite a wacky example from a previous study um, that I think explains it quite well. But they spoke to four and five-year-olds um, and said either Zarpies climb fences. Zarpies are obviously a made-up group of, I don't know, creatures or people. Um, and Zarpies climb fences is what's known as a generic claim because you're, you're just saying Zarpies. Nobody knows which Zarpy. Mm. Um, and a non-generic statement, which is this Zarpy climbs fences. So it's important to go back to the generic one and think about Zarpies climb fences it doesn't actually tell you that all Zarpies climb fences. It doesn't tell you that they're better at climbing fences mm. or that non-Zarpies can't climb fences. It's actually very limited information in Zarpies climb fences. But what they found, essentially, in this previous study, which is not the one we're talking about now, is that children, very young age, with very minimal input of this sort of um, style, these sort of generic claims, quite quickly start to make assumptions such as all Zarpies climb fences and Zarpies are really good at climbing fences and non-Zarpies are not good at climbing fences or don't climb fences, which seems a bit wacky, but it's really important when you think about if you make statements about groups of people, um, be that, in this case, we're going to start talking in a minute about scientists, mm. um, but perhaps if you think in real life about, say, people of different ethnicities, because it's important how people think about groups, mm. then children of a very young age will quite quickly form opinions or perceptions around those groups that the things that you've said actually don't evidence. So because the brain is constantly trying to make sort of shortcuts and group things together and make stereotypes, mm. this feeds a lot into how we might make stereotypes. Um, if you just say, you know, quite quite short generic claims. So that's the previous research and sort of where we're at. Mm. And this experiment was really interesting. Essentially what they did is they looked at how we talked about being scientists and they had two conditions. One was they're talking about scientists in terms of in generic claims. Today we're going to be scientists. Scientists use their five senses to learn about the world. The world. So that's your generic claim. They're talking about scientists as a group of people doing something. Mm. Or describing science in terms of action, and sort of including the, the kids in that, like, let's do science. When you do science, you use your five senses. Quite a subtle difference, but we're talking about it in terms of generic claims or science as an action. So, like, being something, like an identity yes. 
claim versus yeah. doing something like an action claim. Yeah. So essentially, it's it's, it's exactly that. So the, the okay. being versus the doing. Right. Um, so really subtle, but it appears quite important. Yes. So what they found is they had they had an experiment come in and talk to children for sort of three minutes about the scientific method, like the way that you investigate things and see if things are right, you know, like quite basic stuff, because these children were sort of four or five years old. Um, and the children would either be in a group where they would have had that sort of being a scientist language used, or science is something that you do. Mm. Um, and then they played a game, which was quite fun, because it involved smelling things in cups and guessing what it is, which is a scientific method, and translates quite well to the real world because it's the kind of thing that you do in primary school to like show children what like investigating and like checking mm. our claims is like smell this cup see what's there's in it there's some cups in the office now <laughs> that I would, I would not want to smell I would not want to smell they're not involved <laughs> in this experiment um, and they, they did a few trials and then um, all the children kind of had some tricky ones so they might have got them wrong so they might have experienced setbacks which is again very realistic in terms of what you might get when you're doing science mm. and then they were asked if they wanted to carry on doing it which is the sort of dependent measure, the C thing that they wanted to see whether it had an effect on, mm. um, and measured how long the children continued um, taking part in the game of smelling cups. Okay. Um, so what they found then was that girls were more likely to carry on, keep engaging with the game if they'd heard the... Um, the doing science, you know, when science, when we're going to do science, when you do science, you do X, Y, and Z, mm. than if they'd heard the more generic claims about scientists. Okay. Whereas boys were slightly, but less pronouncedly, the other way around. So they're okay if you talk about being science, scientists rather than doing science, boys remain quite engaged. But the girls' engagement dropped off quite dramatically mm. if they talked about scientists do that, scientists do this. Okay. And is that because they... Am I right in thinking that it must therefore be the case that girls, the, the girls in this study, had all, they went into this study with a preconception that they weren't scientists, and that's and then this study just reinforced or kind of ramped up a feeling that scientist is an identity that's kind of a category that's separate from yeah. them. So there must be something yes, existing the, in the, there. Right? The sort of theory is that they came in with the okay. with the preconception that scientists is a group that they are not part of okay. and in terms of where the study ramped that up the study didn't ramp it up in terms of reinforcing the stereotype okay but that may have ramped up that lack of engagement by presenting the context in which they're talking about a group in which the girls were more were less likely to feel they were a part of mm. so that definitely suggests that they came in with some sort of different attitude or different perception mm. um, and therefore you know didn't weren't as engaged when, okay. when they were engaged. So the study didn't add enough any add any content to the aspects of the category that girls felt uh, was less applicable to them, but it kind of it made the fence seem more real. Is that yeah. is that kind of what it did? It, it made it feel like more of a, a set rather than a fluid yeah. a fluid kind of category yeah. they can move in and out of. Yeah. It could be to do sort of like priming the them in terms of thinking about it as a set thing. Mm. Um, and you know that then comes into for all of the, all of the children that might cause them to ask whether or not they're a part of that group when you you know you introduce it as a set thing whether they are included in that mm. um, so these study these results suggest that the girls didn't feel that they were included in that mm. and lo and behold the, the boys yeah. 
we yeah. didn't see the same pattern in this no, study. No, not as pronounced. The, this, the study is quite complicated and they actually did four studies. I've sort of talked about the general findings of one, but the overall message being that girls' engagement drops off from talking about science as something that you you are, something you can be. Mm. Uh, whereas boys, there was a difference that was reversed, but I don't think it was as um, as pronounced or their, and their engagement didn't wasn't as low in the other category as the girls was. Okay. Makes sense. Right. A slightly complex set of results. And the other thing that they noted, noted about this in terms of um, who identifies with that group is that in the experiments they did, they didn't have a large enough, um, it's, it's done quite large numbers, but they didn't have a large enough cohort of boys from non white backgrounds or boys from um, lower socioeconomic backgrounds mm. who also might be kind of, I guess, vulnerable to the stereotype that um, scientists might include middle-class white men mm. um, and therefore they might experience the same kind of lack of engagement as girls mm. um, they didn't test it but they did talk about how it might be the case that they also experience that sort of turning off if they if it's talked about as a group yeah okay which is interesting to think about you know this is about girls mm. how far with it being about girls and thinking about girls engagement in science you know in terms of the real world in schools and a levels we have a problem with girls engagement in science mm. but you know, there's something there for perhaps different groups of boys as well. Mm. Okay, that's really interesting. And so in the real world, because this study also looks at, um, I guess it kind of takes a, a step back again mm. and says what are, what kind of language are young people exposed to when we talk about science? Yeah, so um, they did a really interesting bit where they looked at um, a huge number of pieces of media, children's media, in which science was talked about, and they found the vast majority of it, um, the the language that was used was around this being scientists so the one that if we remember sort of turned the girls off rather than like let's let's do science um so they found that in the real world the kind of language that they're hearing are these generic claims these sort of like labeling scientists do x y or z mm. um and i think it kind of rings true a little bit for me in terms of what practice might be going on with schools because you can see how it might be you know a, a thing something that, that teachers might with all good intentions, set out to make a science lesson interesting or to kind of create ambitions and broaden horizons for children in terms mm. of like being scientists and talking about scientists as a group and what they do in their jobs um, and things like that. They're all very well intentioned in terms of opening up those the, the awareness of those opportunities mm. um, that you know the real world beyond media could reflect that kind of slant as well um, because it, I think it feels a little bit more odd like it doesn't roll off the tongue as much if you're sort of trying to induce a group of kids to talk about science as something you do like mm. when we do science it's not even really the way that we use that verb mm. um so you can imagine talking about like okay today class we're all going to be scientists and what do scientists do mm. they always make sure they investigate like it's language that you could see being used really quite reasonably mm. that might actually be turning certain groups off a little bit mm. Yeah, it's an interesting one in terms of practical recommendations of study, isn't it? Because I also, a little part of me feels like, uh, speak to most people about their, their job and why they enjoy their, their job. And often it's about identity. You know, we make sense of the world by attaching ourselves to well, identifying with certain things. We don't yeah. just do things. We don't take part in a particular workplace role. We, we, are, that, we are that role, we, you know. Yeah. We are that person. We're part of the community of people that have a collective noun attached to them, for instance. And that makes us feel good. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, if maybe one of the downsides of adopting this change in language, if, for instance, we were going to go yeah. to off the back of this study, um, might be the loss of 
the loss of that. Yeah, because um, it is really important, and quite often I think we, like as you say, we do want that, and we feel comfortable in it. We don't want other people, well, hopefully we don't want other people to be limited by it, mm. but we do like that feeling. Um, you know, as long as you can feel comfortable in that group that you want to be a part of, and you're yeah. kind of fitting into that, then, um, then it's it's something that's generally enjoyed. I think. But in terms of the way that you would expect it to actually have an impact on practice, I wouldn't be too worried about that because I think, on one hand, it's a really interesting study and I think you could put some things into practice. I don't think it's something that we necessarily need to lose a massive amount of sleep over because it's very difficult to like police the words that you're saying all the time. It's more something that we might just... You know, some teachers might think about talking about things in a slightly different way, mm. seeing a little bit whether it does improve engagement, just that thing that it's quite difficult to do but we should kind of all make an effort to do especially when we're talking to children like checking the way that you talk about things like and seeing whether it could potentially be reinforcing any stereotypes or kind of notions of in groups and out groups Mm. um but i don't think that people will be able to abandon the way that we naturally use language or change media enough to like really lose those identity groups and it's perhaps more about trying to make sure that you're not turning children off at a young age so that as long as they do keep engaging in science, for instance, and learning about it and hopefully discovering a love of it, then by the time that it gets to whether or not you know, they're going to be in that group, they've got a strong enough love of it to maybe, maybe knock down some barriers for some groups because they do still exist, but hopefully feel comfortable with themselves because they already know they're good at science and you know, they, 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 they take part in it in class and they get really into it. And then that kind of self-concept can hopefully perhaps override some of the more negative stereotypes that are knocking around. We've come to time, Ellie. We have. Um, next That's time we probably, Yeah, we, should, uh, we shouldn't wait so long, so long next time. Hopefully it won't be another two years before you do your next yeah, podcast Yeah, hopefully not. We can discuss some other existential cri- um, questions alongside nitty-gritty bits of research. Yeah, absolutely. I hope there's more kind of zarpies <laughs> and more opportunities for me to talk about things about maths that I haven't necessarily thought about until yeah, I'm not remotely qualified to... <laughs> To, to make claims about <laughs> really fascinating set of studies thanks very much and we will see you again soon on the podcast no worries thanks very much hey people i love making this podcast if you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it there's a few things that you can do one subscribe press the subscribe button on itunes or wherever you listen to it two share Share this episode with somebody who you know will find it interesting or is affected by the specific issues covered. Free. Review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also feel free to contact us via the link on the show notes. Thanks a lot. Bye.